Plenty of blogs, videos, obviously this podcast uh, and, and products and services are on there as well. So be, be sure to check that out. Uh, we're in the midst of winter here in 2017 in Australia. So I hope everyone's keeping warm and enjoying the, the cooler weather. I'm personally steering clear of my social media accounts at present because a lot of family and friends and so forth are over and in Europe enjoying their summer. So I'm trying to steer clear of that. Edit. Just a little bit of light heart and resentment. All right, into today's episode, and I was really fortunate to interview Holly Ransom. Now, I honestly believe, and this is not an overstatement, that Holly is a once-in-a-generation gift to society. In a sense, she she recognised at a young age she wanted to change the world, and, and a lot of people have those thoughts, but Holly's actually acted upon that. Uh, at the ripe old age of 27, she's CEO of a really progressive organisation called Emergent. Uh, she's on the board of the Port Adelaide Football Club, which we discuss is probably the most innovative and progressive boards uh, in the country. Uh, now, that's not downplaying the other boards, but I just think Port Adelaide and David Kosh have, have really got their act together. Uh, Holly talks about her experience growing up, how she didn't quite fit into the university mould. She placed a lot of pressure on herself in terms of results, uh, but that was all internal, uh, not so much external. She also talks about her 12 months she spent following around the CEO of Rio Tinto, which really transformed and, and fast-tracked her career. Uh, we also talk about Holly's morning routine. Uh, I did not know this, uh, but she does get up at 4 a.m. every morning uh, to get things done and get everything sorted for the day ahead. So I talk about launching into the day and, and something that she's really had to get her head around and become accustomed to is, is getting up early. But she said now that she does it, she would never, ever go back. Now, I can't talk highly enough about Holly. She's an unbelievable individual. She's doing some great things in this world. And if you haven't come across her, I, I dare say you will in the next uh, four or five years. So I won't take Holly's story away from her. I'll let you delve into her life, into our conversation. And I hope you really enjoyed this conversation with Holly Ransom. Holly Ransom, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Ryan. I am massively appreciative of your time. I know how busy you are. I, I've seen you've been in, in China with Port Adelaide. I've seen you've been in Israel. So to give up half an hour, 45 minutes of your time today, I'm, I'm really appreciative. Appreciate it. And I'm, I'm actually curious as to, you know, what you do, not so much what you do, but how you got to do what you do. I've, without sounding too creepy, I've, I've followed your journey from afar. Uh, more on social media. So I want to unpack that a little bit. But before we go into Emergent and, and Port Adelaide and, and all those things, I want to sort of backtrack and give the audience a bit of an idea of uh, Holly Ransom and, and how she got to where she got to as a child. Wow, where do we start? Um, I grew up in Western Australia and I, so I moved to Melbourne about four years ago but was born and bred in the West and I probably split a lot of my childhood between Perth and country um, Southwest WA because that was where a lot of my extended family were grandparents, cousins, aunties, uncles all that sort of thing uh, loved growing up in, in WA and was really fortunate that I had uh, particularly a phenomenal education experience both primary school and high school and I think for me that was probably where a lot of the key moments, I, I, I guess phrases like tipping points are probably overused now but when I look at some of the key moments that have probably helped shape me or individuals that have helped shape me on my journey too, it would have been a lot of my early teachers who really pushed me and encouraged me and probably saw something in me long before I realised there might be the capacity to be able to achieve anything of any sort. So a particularly significant moment for me in terms of kickstarting things actually happened when I was um, 10 years old, uh, when I was shopping with my mum in a bookstore in Perth and I'd gotten really bored. I, I wasn't a kid that was very patient in particular and I think I'd spent about two minutes trying to find Wally on the back of the Where's Wally book and I'd given that up, stormed out of the bookstore. 
and stumbled into this onto this guy that was sitting on the side of the footpath with his hat upturned and he was begging for money. And I've never been really a shrinking violet. So 10-year-old me just kind of wandered up to him and said, what are you doing? And this guy looked up at me with a grin and he said, I'm trying to earn enough to get a roof and a fee. And I looked down at what he counted and he had $4.20 in his hat, mostly, mostly in silver coins. I should never have said what I said next, but kind of typical 10-year-old, it slipped past the keeper and I went, but that's not very much. Mm. And this guy chuckled mm. and he said, no, nah, it's a good day, I'm, I'm doing well. And I had sort of two nanoseconds to take that in before my mum dragged me away and gave me a ridiculously good Stranger Danger lecture. Like yes. I went straight to my bedroom when I got home, I got lost my technology privileges for two weeks. But that night I remember it bucketed with rain. And all I could think about as I lay in bed was how come I'm lucky enough to have a roof over my head and to have food in my stomach and this guy that I met on the side of the street today isn't. And if he's in that situation, I wonder how many more people are and all these questions that kept coming that I had no kind of answers for. Um, And the person in my life to that point that had the answers to sort of all these questions was my school principal. There didn't seem to be a question he didn't have an answer to. And so the next morning before school, I, I bailed him up and... I told him what had happened and I said, I want to fix it. How can I fix it? And I just think all the time about how critical it was in that moment that in that first expression of curiosity or that first sign of interest in something, my principal didn't go, oh, I'm too busy to talk to you right now or don't worry about that. He sat me down, he talked to me about it for 15 minutes, encouraged me to go talk to my year five teacher and again, I was blessed that she was someone who said, well, why don't we start a project? So we did a whole school food drive for the next term um, collected hundreds and hundreds of cans worth of food and donated them to a local homeless shelter. And for me, that was like this moment where it was, it was sort of like a math equation that made sense in my head. You know, there's a problem, there's something you can do about it and it can equal a better outcome. And I think ultimately it's the pursuit of how do you change the variables in that mix so that you can exponentially increase that outcome or you can make it self-generate. You know, those are the sorts of things ever since then that I've kind of been on a, a journey of discovery around and in pursuit of. So at the time, you were 10 years old. Obviously, you said it was a profound moment. Do you look back and have you unpacked it as, as an adult or you knew at that time that that's what you wanted to change? No, I don't think I knew it at that time. I think for me that just lit a fire. Um, not that I had so much of the language that you, when you mature and you start getting introduced to all these terms and ideas like passion and mm. finding your why that you can look back and go, oh, that's what that moment did. But I think in, at that point for me it was just this um, a combination of uh, a frustration around what I'd seen and, and wanting to do something about that and probably an energy that I got out of being able to, to do exactly that. And I think it was just that combination at that stage of life that I probably went after. So you, after that particular moment, well, you said it was a tipping point or, as you said, overused, but it was a key moment in your life, did you then become driven year in, year out, day in, day out to make a difference in the world? Or was it something that you, you sort of fell into, um, you know, throughout your secondary school because you were good at, you know, solving problems and public speaking and, and all these things? Oh, that's a tricky question. It, it really goes to the heart of, you know, are you, are you born with some of these sort of innate drivers or, or are they made? I, I think the moment, the, the thing that probably made that moment so significant was my grandmother, who's probably my greatest influence in life, in fact, would definitely be. Um, she used to say this line to me all the time as a really little kid um, that, Holly, when you walk past something, you tell the world it's okay. So at that point in time, I think the reason that moment was so significant, it was it was really the first time I'd come into contact with something that I really couldn't work, walk past to a, to a big degree, as in, you know, not a piece of litter I could go pick up and put in the bin, but a problem that I didn't know what to do about, that I had to go ask questions around and, and try and, and solve in a, in a much more extended and challenging way. Um, and I think that was that's kind of what grabbed me at that moment. I think I've always been driven, but that was the point that gave that drive, I guess, a purposeful direction. And that kind of ebbed and flowed. I think the what I now look back and see in that moment was probably a, an ignition of a passion around improving the lives of those less fortunate in our community and helping giving voice, giving voice to people who don't have an adequate one within our current decision-making structures. I think the thing that I often describe as sort of the, the, my approach to life is I have a very strong sense of direction, but I have a loose hold of the reins. And so as I've grown and as opportunities have presented, 
I mean, there's no way on earth I could have told you that this pathway would have been the way that it would manifest. And as my understanding would have evolved, I would have chosen to to take the approach I've taken in order to deliver on that that purpose or that aspiration. But that's sort of where that comes from. I was having a conversation with my my wife over the weekend, and, and she was saying that I'm, I'm I, personally I'm very patient with people, but I'm very impatient with myself. Now, obviously, when you have that that drive and that passion, that why, there comes a level of stress because you want to get things done. You want to get things done now. Through the back end of your secondary school years, is obviously you're starting to make a name for yourself. I'm I'm assuming in terms of public speaking and and, and so forth, and someone who potentially could change the world. Was that was there a level of pressure around that to perform well in year twelve and beyond? Definitely, and I think probably I would say though as much as as there's an expectation that other people had around that, probably no one put more of that pressure on on me than I did. I think I was definitely the, the, the main driver and I was the one that had the very clear goal for what mark I wanted to get at the end of year and in terms of getting into uni and where I wanted to finish in the, the subject results across the board and everything like that. So that drive was, was definitely there. But I think the weight of expectations is an interesting one and it's something I've felt from a young age and stage. I think the thing that's so important and it probably took me, again, a bit more self-awareness and more on that personal growth journey to, to be able to reflect back and go, well, are these aspirations and goals and expectations I want to take on for myself because I'm energised around them. They're things I do want to go and achieve and I'm happy to to take the commensurate level of pressure on or are these something someone's projecting onto me? And, and that distinction and making sure that you're marching to the beat of your own drum and you're not living to someone else's definition of success or according to be it societies or be it certain individuals in your lives, expectations and pressures, I think is, is so important. And it's probably not one I worked out till a bit later in my 20s. And just on that, with, with the direction, you mentioned that you've, you've got a strong direction on where you're going, but you're quite loose with the reins. Has there been times where you've had to, uh, metaphorically speaking, pull those reins up and say, oh, I am off course here, I need to get back on track? Definitely. And I think, you know, you try and develop as good a filter as you can for the opportunities that come in front of you. And, and the thing that I've found too is one of the challenges that comes uh, with, with life and sort of the, the evolving nature of opportunities and, and the way that you grow too is that that filter needs to grow alongside you. And so sometimes you can make the mistake of uh, evaluating an opportunity uh, based on a, a set of criteria that might have worked really well and applied perfectly for you 12 months or 18 months ago. But now when you look at the playing field that you're at, what it is that matters to you, what you're seeking to learn, but also what you're seeking to give, that may not be relevant. And so there have been times where I've picked opportunities and I've landed them and gone, oh, either this wasn't what I thought it would be or I didn't realise that this probably wasn't the sort of place or situation I needed to find myself in right now in order to be able to give the best of myself. So I think that happens routinely and you've got to, you've got to go as easy as you can on yourself in those moments. And I think that for me is... Uh, where I've sought the advice and guidance, I'm huge on mentoring. I couldn't be a bigger advocate or believer in it. And in making those decisions and then on sometimes reflecting when I'm in them on to what to do because I still believe there's great opportunity to make the best of a situation you may not have really intended to find yourself in. You know, find learning, find inspiration, um, uh, find whatever it is that obviously that was placed in your life for you to learn or to do. Um, I think that's where mentors become really, really important and critical. Couldn't, couldn't agree more, Holly. Now, just to, I'm, I'm curious as to that time lapse between the end of school and you becoming a CEO of, of the company called Emergent in, in your mid-20s. So there's a lot of noise out there. A lot of people are, you know, are banging on about this is the way of the world and this is how we can fix things. Now, what you've done, I think, better than anyone else uh, is you separate yourself from that noise. So how have you done that and what did that journey look like from finishing school, going to uni, then becoming a, a CEO in your mid-20s. Thank you for that compliment. I appreciate that. Uh, I Look, it's been an interesting one. I, I went to university. I did a law economics degree. I was a very disengaged university student, if I'm being completely honest. I was someone who got into the course because I had the marks to do it, but was really fortunate that my vice-chancellor on day one of university said this great line, Professor Alan Robson, he said, if you leave university with just a piece of paper, we have failed you. If you haven't taken the opportunities to 
to study abroad, to volunteer, to get involved in student life, whatever it might be, then then we've really failed you. And I was probably that kid that took that too far the other way and kind right. of ran in the opposite direction. Okay. And I think for, for me, university was an incredible period of life for being able to start up nonprofit organisations, get involved in social enterprise work, both in Australia and overseas, um, be able to be involved in a number of really pivotal leadership development programs that gave me a toolkit and the inspiration um, to be able to apply myself in a whole other way. And I was really fortunate that a, a combination of some of that sort of work, predominantly the work I was doing in the nonprofit community, led me to get on the radar of the CEO of Rio Tinto, Sam Walsh, uh, who then created a role for me to go into Rio and work for him, which was an unbelievable privilege. Sam is an extraordinary businessman and an extraordinary person, full stop. And to have the opportunity to work alongside him and to rotate through a business of that sort of scale and complexity and and work on business improvement and leadership and, and public affairs initiatives was an incredible initiation by fire. Uh, and then from there, um, a combination again of kind of the work in corporate and the work I'd done in, in non-profit sort of led me to be appointed by the Prime Minister to lead the Youth Summit for the G20, which was an unbelievable privilege to have the responsibility for representing the 1.5 billion young people from across the G20 in conversations with world leaders. And that was sort of the move that brought me east. I think I had 197 flights that year and I got it right. about one month into doing that from Perth and went, stuff this for a joke, this is crazy. So I moved over to Melbourne and, and also alongside sort of the final six months of the G20, you know, started, started a role working uh, in banking as um, chief of staff to the wealth executive at National Australia Bank. Um, so a kind of, a, again, a, a really interesting experience. Andrew Hager there, phenomenal business leader, dealing with an incredibly complex business and a really difficult strategic transformation period. Um, and great learning curves to have those baptisms of fire in two very different industries, working under great leaders and seeing how they operate. Um, and I think between kind of a combination of those business experiences, but then also that G20 experience and seeing this macro situation around what's going on with the generational shift in the world you know having responsibility for representing this voice of young people who were extraordinarily disengaged from institutions from education from skilling it, it just made me passionate about playing a role in in changing the way we lead and changing the way that we work because i think what became increasingly apparent to me over that period of time is the way that we're doing it now i mean i don't even think it's holding at the moment mm. but it's sure as hell not going to hold into the future mm. So for me, it was a want to take that experience and then be able to lean in and work with business leaders um, and groups of management and executives who wanted to make that change and who were hungry for the toolkit and the strategic support to be able to get that done. So that was really the, the origin of Emergent. It, was, um, it came out of, of that. And I guess we've, we've focused around strategic work and leadership development for businesses that are rapidly transforming and for organisations that have intergenerational workforces. They're sort of our two main areas of focus. Um, and I absolutely, I feel so for, so fortunate now to be two years into that journey and absolutely loving it and having the privilege of working with some amazing businesses and government departments and non-profit organisations and big companies, little companies, you name it. I want to get back to Emergent uh, in, in about five minutes, but I want to go, sure. I want to go back to that phase between being a little bit disengaged with the university environment, not sure where to go, had some good mentors, but how do you go from that person to getting introduced to the CEO of Rio Tinto, being employed by them, and then being co-chair of the uh, G20 Youth Summit? Well, look, your guess is as good as mine. I think it's one of those things where sometimes in life, things come together in a way where you can look back and try and retrofit an explanation on it or, or say that there was a plan, but in reality there, there wasn't. I think I was just someone that was, in whatever kind of landscape I found myself in, was trying to do the absolute best that I could to make an impact and deliver on what it was that I had put in front of me. I'd sort of worked since, well, I'd, I'd been working since I was 13 and yeah. I'd been variety of roles since that age and stage, starting in the back room of a surf shop and heading through, you know, event management, sport coaching and tutoring. And, and it was actually specifically work I was doing in women's empowerment that connected me with Sam. Um, at the time, just beforehand, I was co-chairing um, then UN Women Australia's youth chapter in Western Australia. And we've been able to garner some really phenomenal success 
with the momentum we'd achieved and, and the fundraising goals and we're sort of leading the way in the country uh, in that regard. And I'd also had the opportunity to go up and go over to uh, Kenya and start a microfinance project working with 22 women in the slums of Korogocho in Kenya. And the combination of, of that work in the women's empowerment space led me to get the opportunity to give one of the keynote addresses at the 100th anniversary of International Women's Day in Canberra at Parliament House. Uh, sorry, at Government House. And that was one of the more surreal moments of my life. I can remember being really nervous at, at that moment. You know, I was going to a room of all these politicians and ambassadors and uh, I'd also just come back from Kenya about 36 hours before and I had completely lost my voice on a very protracted journey home. Like we had a horror, right. like it's your airline worst nightmare, okay. our journey home. And so I didn't have any voice to speak of at the end of it. So it was quite funny and I remember I gave the presentation, it went really well fortunately and I got some kind of croaky voice back by that point and then we're at some morning tea afterwards and I was sort of the only young person there and I think Sam, the CEO of Rio Tinto, was sort of the only um, male there probably at the time. We sort of went out in sympathy with each other and he just came over and said, hi, I'm Sam and you know, I didn't think anything of that, I just started talking to him and we chatted for like half an hour about business and women's empowerment and mentoring and all these other wonderful things and at the end of it he he gave me his business card and I was like oh you're that Sam I'm meant to know who you are oh, like, so you didn't know um, but it was one of those things he said you know I'd love to keep in touch you're really fascinating and you know it'd be, be great to continue the conversation and, and that's sort of what happened over the following months and then uh, again in weird circumstances at the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting um, reception with the Queen, uh, he came up to me and said, you know, I've been meaning to have a conversation with you. I, I want you to come and work for me. Can we have a chat about that? So that was kind of where that journey started. Um, and, you know, incredible to have a leader in a position like that be so intentional about creating opportunity uh, for someone, someone younger, someone emerging. Uh, and I thank my lucky stars every day that Sam Walsh and I cross paths and he continues to be one of um, the closest mentors and you know, biggest sources of encouragement and, and advice in my life. You do a huge amount of speaking, you rub shoulders with the biggest business people in the country. Now, obviously, you're comfortable with that status now, but back then, how did you deal with fear? And you mentioned that you were nervous and there was a level of stress there. How, do you, how did you deal with fear and how do you currently still deal with that fear? That's a great question. Uh, Look, I think one of the, the big things for me, and because people often say, how do you get started? Like there's a magic silver bullet. And I, I suppose that's our natural human inclination is to search for that kind of uh, one solution or the answer that's like the aha moment. But in reality, I think the thing for me was there were years I spent, and people in Perth can attest to this, I would go to the opening of an envelope if it meant I got the opportunity to practice my speaking. Mm. You know, if there was a way I could be in front of an audience and I could be, you know, trying to add some value and delivering a message and getting a sense of what worked and what didn't, I'd be there. And I spent years particularly doing that through the youth nonprofit community and doing that through the community sector. Um, and that was how organically speaking starting. I never intended to be a speaker. I fell into speaking. Uh, and that really came about through work I was doing in the nonprofit space where other organizations would say, could you come and do a presentation on us on, uh, for us on how you ran that campaign? Or could you come and run a strategy workshop for us or a membership engagement workshop or whatever it might have been? And that sort of grew into then starting to address groups of students. And then a number of my mentors actually challenging me into starting a business and saying, you realize what you're doing has commercial application. Mm. You should be working with companies too. So I think for me, it was actually that preparedness just to continually push myself to be in front of those audiences. And the more that you do that, the more that it loses its fear. Um, and I remember one of my mentors used to say this to me all the time. They actually said stress or nerves, nerves when you're speaking are selfish. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. That's a really powerful reframe because when we're speaking, like nerves is probably a more accurate reflection of kind of how we're feeling. We're nervous that, you know, we'll stuff our words up or we're nervous that someone will laugh at us or we'll say something wrong or whatever it might be. And when this idea that nerves are selfish and, and the point she made was, well, if you're nervous, you're focusing on yourself. Your role as a speaker is to be focusing on your audience and ensuring that you're doing the absolute best to deliver something that's of value for, 
to them because they've given you the incredible privilege of an hour of their time or half an hour of their time. And in honoring that, you need to be 100% focused on them. And that mindset shift for me as a speaker was probably one of the really big things that started to make me comfortable in those rooms. The other thing was probably reminding myself particularly when you go into conversations with like, I remember the G20, it was mm. you, you literally Obama and, and the UN Secretary General and the, the big wigs of global companies. And you just have to go, I'm not meant to be on their level. Like I'm not here because we're on an equal footing. I'm here because I've got a really important advocacy role on behalf of a key group. Um, and that I should rest and sit very, very comfortably in. I think sometimes when we get into that point of comparison, it's so easy to then enter those situations from a deficit viewpoint. And from a deficit viewpoint, I think naturally, you know, you feel awkward or uncomfortable, you don't know what to say. And other people feel that and they'll they'll feed off that energy. And unfortunately, that probably won't lead to a particularly good interaction. The thing that completely catapulted me in fear though was uh, my best friend and I doing a crazy challenge in 2015. I'm very fortunate to have a best friend who's the only person like crazy enough when I say I've got a great idea to say awesome and I'm in before I tell him what it is. Right. And it was reading this line that says that it's the things we're afraid of that we most need to do that prompted me to say, how about we do a whole year where we guinea pig that idea and for 365 days we do something we're afraid of. And so we did. We did this thing called Fear Factor 15 for all of 2015 where every day we did something we're afraid of. And it remains the single greatest thing I've ever done for my personal growth and development. And the one of the, there were so many learnings over the course of that journey. One was what surprised us was when people asked us about fear, when we finally got bold enough to start talking to them about it, the number one question everyone came back with was, how do you have enough things you're afraid of? Mm. And that struck me as so curious because we felt like we had this never-ending list and it made me realize that we've kind of put a qualifying bar or a stereotypical kind of umbrella over fear. And it's it looks like jumping out of a plane or swimming with sharks and we've actually lost our sensitivity for resistance. And I believe resistance is actually the single greatest destroyer of progress and innovation. And that's that fear that creeps in when we go, oh no, I won't put my hand up and ask a question because like, what if it's a dumb question? And what if people, what if people laugh at me? I'll just, no, I'll keep my hand down. Mm. Or I won't put myself forward for an opportunity because you know, what if I go for it and I don't get it and everyone knows that'd be so embarrassing? Or what if I go for it and get it and don't know what to do? That's even worse. And all these ways we can spin it so we actually stop ourselves from progressing. And it was that really powerful understanding that we actually need to heighten our awareness of resistance. And in those moments where we feel it, it's that courage to be able to push through and do it anyway. Uh, That's really, really important. Yeah. And for me, it's actually been critical through that year to start building a habit of getting comfortable being uncomfortable. Because I think, particularly in this day and age, and Ryan, I'm sure this is something you can resonate with the work that you do, in such a, such a disruptive time with so much change going on, with an increasingly uncertain landscape, particularly in front of our young people, it's probably the single most important competency we can build is getting comfortable being uncomfortable in the face of uncertainty and ambiguity, all that sort of stuff. We've got to be able to trust ourselves to be able to navigate that. I, look, I couldn't agree more with that statement, Holly. And I always say that the the uh, overindulging in comfort mm. is the ultimate discomfort. And you know, the example that I use is, you know, if you, if you had a massive week, you've been traveling, you've been getting up early to exercise, you've been at work, you get home on a Friday night and you lay on that couch, it feels bloody good. It feels great. But if you lay on that couch for four or five days on end because you've been sick or you're injured, that same action turns very uncomfortable very quickly. So I couldn't agree with that statement more that the, the, being uncomfortable, is actually, it actually leads us to being comfortable. Uh, because there's so many devices out there, isn't there? You know, Facebook, Netflix, all these things that we're tapping into in our, in our personal lives that are wrapped around comfort. And we need to step outside that, like you said, to be uncomfortable so we can progress. Like I said, I couldn't agree with that statement anymore. And you really hit on the head there something that was an interesting part of the learning journey for us. Because if we think about sort of a comfort zone and then what I call a courage zone, which is sort of that step beyond, mm. what was really interesting is when you actually stepped into your courage zone, you did the thing you're afraid of, the most amazing thing is your comfort zone actually expands mm. and it takes in entirely new territory in your current zone. So things 
that you were uncomfortable doing, situations you weren't comfortable in, uh, skills you didn't feel uh, like you were, I don't know, able to use or you had unease about. All of a sudden, all of that's in your wheelhouse. And that's the key thing I think we need to understand is as leaders and as people who are hungry to progress and grow is that's that's the only way growth happens mm. is that preparedness to step outside. But the cool thing is if you're prepared to do it, you'll actually gain a comfort with it quite quickly. So it's short-term pain for long-term gain. During that fear factor 15, what was the most ridiculous thing that you did? <laughs> well, okay, the most ridiculous thing, there's kind of the, the stupid ridiculous, yep. which was the one night. We did this every, every day, as I said, for 365 days. And there was only one day, I think, where at about 11.50 at night, we were living together at the time, my best friend and I, we worked out we hadn't done anything. Right. And there were consequences on the line for, for not getting it done. And so we literally ran down into the middle of Burke Street and danced in the middle of Burke Street at 11.50 at night for the sake of getting a fear done. But the most absurd thing I probably did was I decided to sign up for an Ironman endurance triathlon about 100 days out from race day at a time where I couldn't have run 10Ks mm-hmm. and probably hadn't been on a bike in, I don't know, six, seven years. So a really ridiculous stretch goal. And to make it even scarier for myself, I decided to make it hugely public, which is not something I am at all comfortable doing and something I've never really, I've always resisted doing that before. So I actually decided to raise money for Lane Beachley's Aim for the Stars Foundation through running this triathlon too. So it was not just that I was doing this ridiculous stretch goal, I was pretty sure I probably couldn't do, but I'd also made the potential for failure very public if that was going to happen everyone was going to know about it so that was probably the the biggest fear and it's probably the sum total of about 40 of the individual fear factors there were so many mini fears on the journey to even the start line of that race i'm jumping around a little bit here which i like to do on the mindset project but exercise is is a huge part of your life now was it off the back of deciding to do the ironman or was it always there or did you need that that stretch goal, like you said, to sort of get things moving? I've always been sport obsessed. Yeah. That goes without, without saying since I was a little kid. And right throughout school, I was always a team sport athlete. The challenge then being that when you hit sort of your teens and you start traveling with quite a high volume and all those sort of things, becomes you become a, the worst team sport member ever. Mm. You're sort of turning around your team and saying, look, I can probably play one out of 13 weeks of the season. So increasingly that made me have to go to individual exercise um, and for a while I pretty well exclusively just dabbled in CrossFit type of dynamic strength work so really had never ever ever been a cardio athlete in fact I was pretty convinced that that just wasn't in my physiology I couldn't do that sort of exercise so it was absolutely the stretch goal that pushed me into that kind of training um, that pushed me into that style of working out and I definitely drank the cool weight I, I did my first one in December of 2015 and then I raced again uh, in the United States last year, and I'm in training at the moment to race again later this year. So I've I've really enjoyed it. I found it an incredible environment to to guinea pig on myself. So many interesting theories around high performance and motivation and self talk and leadership and growth. And so it's become my own little training ground that allows me to test ideas that I then go work with my coaching clients on and, and things like that. So just on that, people say that. If you do an Ironman, you have to be quite selfish with your time. Now, that may not be the right word, but we'll, we'll run with that. Is it, is it sustainable for you long term in terms of you know, your time? You're very busy. You travel a lot, like you said. You speak a lot. You've got your CEO of an of emerging uh, business, pardon the pun there. But is, yeah. is, is doing an Ironman you know, sustainable year in, year out for the next 10, 20 years? It's a really great question, and they often call triathlon the sport of divorce for that reason, <laughs> I think, because it, having to be at a good level across three disciplines is a is a pretty challenging beast in that regard. And if you're training for a full Ironman towards race week, when you're in your peak training cycle, you'll be doing about 20 hours of training a week. Uh, so that's an enormous volume. I think the thing for me, I, I raced by two fools at a time in my life where I could kind of accommodate that. And I also did an absolute hack job on the training, as my coach would tell you. Right. I did all my cycling hours, you know, on a gym bike late at night or early in the morning. You know, I, I had to make 
it work? So it certainly wasn't best practice. I wasn't training in that sort of way. And I, I think the thing I would say is um, it's for me, I'm only going to race halves for a little while in part because, you know, I don't want to do that to my partner and in part because uh, I think as well um, from my standpoint, there's a new learning to be had in the shorter form of things. I think the other thing I'd say is it would be, I have a very different answer to that question if I felt the need to try and qualify for Kona. Mm-hmm. If I was racing to the point of wanting to be competitive, I would say it would be unsustainable because the athletes I know who are racing at that level, the sacrifice is enormous. I do it more because of I found the there to be extraordinary benefit in being this fit. And now that I'm there, I actually really don't want to lose that because my operating capacity is so much higher than anything I've ever experienced. My focus and my concentration is so much better than anything I've ever experienced. So I enjoy maintaining this fitness level, but I'm not someone who needs to qualify for Kona for this pursuit in my life to have been worthwhile or meaningful. So I'm going to continue to dabble in it because I find joy in it and I find learning in it. Um, But... I wouldn't. I, I would agree with you. I would say if I was pursuing it with a competitive lens, there would need to be a lot of sacrifice in the rest of my life. Yeah. And you mentioned a really important point there. I remember hearing Joel Salwood talk probably five or six years ago uh, throughout pre-season, saying it's a lot easier to stay fit than get fit. And oh, yeah. And, and you mentioned that there. And, and no doubt, as you know, that when you when you're a progressive person, you need to be sharp mentally, and obviously with that comes that that physical preparation behind it. Yeah, I think those two are incredibly linked and we probably don't pay enough attention to that a lot of the time. We forget that sort of food and exercise are sort of the two places we should default to before we start looking for another solution to, you know, our lagging energy or not feeling particularly great or anything like that. All right, now, I'm conscious of your time, Holly, so I've got a few more uh, questions before we part ways, but it's been fantastic. Now, you are on the Port Adelaide board. Now, from afar, I would say the Port Adelaide board board or the Port Adelaide organisation as a whole would probably be the most progressive and innovative at present. You've moved, you've had a game in China this year, which you went to, is that right? I did, yeah. Yep. So how, how did that process play out for you being nominated for the board and, and, and what, what legacy do you want to leave on that board? Well, Port Adelaide, so I think I mentioned before, I've always been a sports fan and particularly I would say I've always been an enormous AFL fan. Um, and I, I guess I've been involved in the periphery of the game. I'd started to connect with people, particularly since I'd, I'd located to Melbourne. And actually, over the last few years, I've had the privilege of working with a number of the sports departments of different state governments around the country and with the Australian Institute of Sport. And so I'd started to get engaged in the sporting space, which has been one of the, the true joys of the way that my work's developed. I love working in that high-performance environment. And off the back of a combination of my work, I'm, I'm really not sure what exactly it was, uh, but I was fortunate enough to have David Koch reach out and ask to have a, a cup of coffee and sort of sat down and um, said that he'd been following my work for some time and he was interested in having a conversation with me about the opportunity to come and get involved in Port Adelaide and would I be interested. And I'd grown up an Eagles fan and, and so people often you know like to take make jokes about that and I always say it's it's akin to that process of sort of an AFL player nominating for the draft. You know, mm. if you're going to put your hand up to be involved in that space, you've got to be sure that you're excited about the destination you might end up. You believe in their mission and vision. You believe you can add value. Um, and I totally agree with you, Ryan. You know, there was a lot of AFL clubs I looked at in that period of time and said, you know, if, it, if, if even if it were that I was fortunate enough that they would make an approach, I, I could say that that wouldn't be uh, an environment where I... I would say that the progressive nature of the values and the environment of the club and the nature of the strategy would have been a good fit for, for me. So I believe wholeheartedly that Port Adelaide are the most progressive of the clubs around the AFL mix at the moment, you know, doing some really, really interesting stuff. That's not to say, I should add, that there aren't wonderful initiatives going on across uh, the other 17. But I felt incredibly fortunate to, as I got to know this club through the interview process where I met so many of their leaders to get a really strong sense of a club that had two feet grounded in its community, really uh, passionate about their footprint in Port Adelaide, certainly their work with Indigenous communities, but have this incredibly ambitious and bold and disruptive vision for where they needed to take the club and even where they needed to take the game. And and you've touched on China, you know, how it is you open up uh, and, and commercial opportunity for a club that allows it to maintain competitiveness in an increasingly expensive games that we are in in AFL 
um, through pioneering a new frontier for Australian football uh, and being this conduit between Australian business and Chinese business in, in that two-way transaction and sports diplomacy. And it's been amazing to have watched that manifest over the last year and a half and to have had our first game in China and that to have gone very successfully from the club's standpoint and, and now already progressing conversations around what that looks like moving forward. So that's been incredible to be a part of. You know, for me, it's really about wanting to grow what you're talking about in terms of seeing that really innovative undercurrent that's running through the club. You know, my want is to continue to grow and build on that legacy that I think David Koch, as our chairman, is doing such a brilliant job of establishing. Um, you know, help to take China to the full extent of that we can really connect in and engage with the next generation of young fans Think about the user experience in terms of game day, but also how we offer digital fan engagement and what the next frontier of that is from a sports standpoint. Certainly women's football and how it is we um, progress sort of women's involvement in every aspect of the game. I'm, I'm quite fortunate to be on the advisory board for the AFLW at the same time. So that's sort of kind of a, a culmination of where it is that, that my interest would lie at the moment. Um, and I think that will continue to evolve. The great thing about football clubs is they're very dynamic spaces and new opportunities come on the table all the time that will continue to no doubt evolve how it is we bring you know, our vision to life at Port Adelaide. But I couldn't be happier with where I am and couldn't feel more fortunate to work alongside the people that I do. And you, you're sitting pretty, so you had a good win on the weekend. So 2017 very is wide open. That always, always thrilling to be calling Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Now... You are it's mid, mid to late 20s. Now, through all this journey, which is a phenomenal journey, have you had any resistance because, one, uh, your age, or two, because of your gender? Has there been resistance along any of those themes? Oh, completely, and there still is. Yep. You know, I think that's just part and parcel of, uh, of, well, I think probably having an opinion and wanting to get out there and be involved. And, and naturally as well, this sort of stuff butts up against tall poppy syndrome in Australia. So, you know, any time to begin with that you're putting yourself out there mm. or, um, you know, trying to make things happen to a certain degree, I think you, you come up against that, unfortunately, limiting cultural phenomenon. But, yes, I, I would be lying to say that I haven't. And I think the biggest thing I've learned through that is I, I – I assume that that will come. I assume I will encounter that, particularly now with social media too. Mm. You know, you can you can cop more of that probably than you would have previously because there's a lot of keyboard warriors who wouldn't say things to your face but are very happy to say it behind an anonymous little um, handle. So uh, the biggest thing for me is, is working out, uh, and I think Brene Brown touches on this really well in her work in Daring Greatly. She talks about this idea of sort of who's in the arena and only letting yourself be open to the the critique and the feedback of the people who are in the arena alongside you, who've got skin in the game, who are working towards ambitious goals, who are putting themselves on the line, not listening to the people who are comfortably sitting back on the couch throwing stones from afar. Mm. Um, and that's easier said than done, don't get me wrong. There are still days where those people slip through the cracks and they really knock you one. But I think that notion of making sure that you're surrounded by people who who are doing those sorts of things you're inviting their feedback um you, you're making sure that i'm very open to feedback and i continually want to improve but i want that feedback to come from places where there's uh i guess the right intentions behind it and where that the people who are giving it to me i respect the trajectory of the work of the value set of so I think that's probably the best way to mitigate it. The other thing is the degree to which you open yourself up for it on social media. So, you know, I have a love-hate relationship with social mm. media, mostly hate. Yep. <laughs> um, I've made some great friends and connections through Twitter and that remains Twitter and LinkedIn sort of my favourite of the two, but I can't stand Facebook and Instagram. And based on all the surveys we've seen of late regarding what they do for wellbeing, um, they're sort of down the very bottom end of what it means for your mental health, which doesn't surprise me. So I think as well, you know, I often talk to people about how important it is you're as intentional in curating your digital environment as you are about curating your physical environment. So, you know, if the average of the five people that you spend the most time around, that applies in real life just as much as that applies to who it is that you're surrounding yourself with in a digital community. So I try and be really conscious around that and make sure that I'm absorbing a lot of, of positive influences in that regard. And, and I talk to a lot of my mentors about these challenges, about facing resistance, about difficulty being the only woman at the board table or whatever it might be and, and 
use their experience to help give me strategies to try so that I can be more effective in the way I show up uh, and making sure that, you know, you can kind of overcome any any resistance people might have at first glance. Because the thing is, most of these things are just <coughs> snap judgments. They're not actually informed by behavior or interaction. They're a preconception prior to meeting you or prior to be able to interact. It's- so I think my belief is it might start there and I can't control the biases that someone comes into an interaction with, but I can try and control the way that that interaction transpires in order to make sure that they don't leave that conversation or that experience feeling the same way as they did when they started. It's a fine line between criticism and feedback, and your filter sounds very similar to mine. I've got a a free list check, a list that I go through, and it's do I respect that person? Can I learn from that person? And am I a better individual in that person's company? If it's tick, 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 it's time to listen up. That's great. Because it's feedback. If it's it's not, well, then it's criticism in one ear out the other. So it's very, very similar to what, what you said. All right, just uh, one or two more, more questions. Uh, morning routines seem to be you know, the buzz topic at present to get people in the best mental and, and I suppose, uh, physical shape possible to, to launch into to the, into the day. Do you have a particular morning routine? I know you travel a lot, but when you do have a, a set day, is there anything that you must do in the morning to make sure you're primed for the day ahead? I'm an early bird, so I'm a 4 a.m., starter and I'm a big believer in getting up early I was sort of challenged into doing that a few years ago by one of my mentors and was a bit of a skeptic when we started but I couldn't be more of a convert I think having that sort of two hours a day where you know you're in charge of your time your phone's not ringing your email's not pinging um, and you can be quite intentional about what you work through is brilliant Um, and for me that's really development time so I use that to do a lot of um, creative work I use that to read Uh, I use that to work through any particular programs or anything I might be doing for my own growth and and things of that nature or or goal setting. So that's really pivotal. I also quite often will use that to exercise. So I might get a session in, you know, before the day kicks off. Um, But that sort of first two hours of the day for me is that really great focused development time because I think it's really easy otherwise to have the best of intentions but to find... You run out of time in the day or you're tired and you're falling asleep when the, by the time you open your book or whatever it might be. So, yeah, absorbing material, be it watching things, listening to things, reading things, doing self-work, that's really what those hours are for me. Do you get enough sleep, Holly? I mean, just I mean, I, I, I'm an early bird too, not quite that early, but, I mean, just with your, your schedule and, and obviously what's going on in your life, do you, do you feel that you're, you're lacking sleep at time getting up at that, that hour or you feel like it's sustainable? Yeah, I feel like it's sustainable, definitely. Um, my partner goes to sleep quite early, and so I think by virtue of that, I probably have tended earlier, you know, in recent years, as opposed to the, probably the night owl habits I was keeping in, early in my 20s. I think probably earlier there, I was doing, you know, from going to bed at midnight and then getting up at four, whereas mm. now it would be more like, you know, 10, 10, 30, 11, and I find I'm not someone who's ever needed that much sleep, so for me, that, that works pretty perfectly. Okay, fantastic. All right, last question. So, been fantastic. Massively appreciate your time. You play in this space a lot. What advice would you give to millennials? I know it's a how long's a piece of string question, but what advice would you give to millennials living in the, the, the current age? Well, I think one of the biggest things for me is this piece around the way that we're skilling and developing our young people and what it is that we know is happening to the nature of work. So unfortunately, we know that the reality is not just a majority of the content we're teaching in the classroom, but I'd also argue the way that we're teaching Mm. it in terms of it being quite passively delivered. There's not much opportunity to fail safe, um, to build all these core resiliency kind of facets of your own um, personality that are necessary. I think there are probably a couple of things I'd say to millennials. The first thing I'd say is to the degree that you can get experience in the places that you're looking to get a job opportunity. If you're in work but you have aspirations that are outside of, because I meet a lot of millennials who are frustrated with the current status quo, Mm -hmm. find ways of taking volunteering opportunities, find ways of getting involved in a startup or sitting on the advisory board for a community group and broaden your network, your exposure, start building relationships that are where those opportunities are going to come from, that build that experience bank because increasingly that's going to be what you're going to need far more than the piece of paper you've got because we know that with the way that skilling's going, um, unfortunately education isn't keeping pace with it at the moment, particularly in a tertiary sense. Mm. And so we need to be really mindful about 
that. I think getting mentors is absolutely critical uh, and just trying to make sure, again, that you're getting the advice and the real-world grounding of some of the ideas that you have for what it is that you're going to go do. But my biggest thing would be don't doubt for a second that you can't have extraordinary impact in this world. Mm. We are so uniquely placed with the tools, the platforms, the capability um, to be able to do exceptional things, to be able to be the generation that that does positively change things. And I think there's a, a need in general for that to happen. Probably few would argue that. So don't doubt your ability to be a part of that positive movement and don't limit your aspiration or the way that you think you can contribute to that. And one final one, Holly. What's what's Holly Ransom's legacy? Obviously, if, if the if the world ended tomorrow, I mean, the legacy would be a phenomenal one thus far. But what what's the future hold, and, and what does that legacy look like for you? It's a great question. I think you know it'll ultimately remain around that childhood aspiration that I started the, the journey on. But I think for me, you know, my want has been to empower a new generation of leaders with the ability and the skill set necessary to solve complex global problems. So I'm increasingly fascinated by how it is that we unpack 2017 context and looking at the world right now and going, okay, well, there's a degree to which the leadership models of old and the working models of old aren't working anymore and wanting to help leaders who are saying, well, I want to be a part of positively changing things. I want to be a part of driving social cohesion and I want to be a part of innovating for a better world. They're the leaders I want to be leaning in with and helping to grow their impact uh, and really leverage the skills and the vision that they have in order to leave their own extraordinary legacy. So for me, it's that kind of cumulative impact of that that I get excited about. Awesome. Great way to finish. Holly, uh, you're a credit to yourself. I think you're a trailblazer for young females in this country, not just young females, but young people in this country. You, you know, you've been voted top 20, uh, sorry, top 10, uh, get this right, top 100 women of influence in Australia alongside you know, Jenna Reihardt, you know, Gail Kelly. So keep doing what you're doing because uh, what it is is working. And like I said, I look forward to following your journey from from afar, maybe just a touch closer now that we've uh, we've made this introduction. So all the best for everything. Thanks so much, Ryan. I appreciate you having me on and congratulations on everything you're doing too. Perfect. Thanks, Holly. I really appreciate it. The fact that you're listening to this podcast tells me that you're driven. Driven to improve in your business, your team, your health or your personal life. Why don't you turn that drive into action and contact Ryan Waite today? Ryan brings a straightforward approach to his speaking and coaching to create the best results for you, your team, or your business. He assists in closing the gap between where you are and where you want to be. Ryan is the author of two books, Leadership Within, 20 Ways to Unlock the Leader in You, and Progressive Mindset. He is also the host and producer of this podcast. He is one of the most engaging, refreshing, and thought-provoking speakers out there today. Get in touch with Ryan to see how he can assist you by heading to his website, ryanweightperformance.com. Ryan can also be found on all the relevant social media platforms. We look forward to you listening to the next episode of The Mindset Project. Have a great day.